Let's uh, open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16. This chapter could be called the family of God. Uh, God created family. He gave us the Bible, our instruction manual on many things, including how to be a family. He's the only one with the authority to tell us how to be a family. Um, He shed his own blood to give birth to this family, the church. Only he can give us the perfect instructions on how we should relate to each other. It may not always be perfect on our part, but the church is the best imperfect family that we've got going. According to the world, some of the things that make for a strong family are spending time together, enjoying and appreciating one another, sharing common values and convictions, having respect for each other, following through on your promises, sticking together during tough times, communicating effectively, being committed to one another, being loyal and honest to each other, not yelling at each other, being willing to forgive one another, and eating together. These would be similar to the things that we'd be looking for in our spiritual family as well. One thing that's missing from that list, though, is um, that we might not think of is reproving or confronting one another. What if a parent never corrected a child, or a spouse never confronted their mate, or a sibling didn't reprove another sibling for something done wrong? Um, we need to help each other with the blind spots that we don't always know that we have. Um, and if we don't do this, children will go off the rails and family members might become angry or resentful towards each other instead of working out problems. The same is true in our spiritual family. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 in the Amplified Version says, Better is an open reprimand of loving correction than love that is hidden. Faithful are the wounds of a friend who corrects out of love and concern, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful because they serve his hidden agenda. So part of loving one another is reproving one another when it's needed. At different places in the Bible, pastors are called um, to rebuke or call out sin. And that means confronting people with their sin. And that isn't something that someone enjoys doing, but it's important and it's necessary. In Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Correction is necessary at times, but if it isn't done the right way, it can cause a person to be resentful and put up a wall to the point where they can't receive anything that we have to say. Reproving should always be done in a spirit of meekness, as Galatians 6.1 tells us. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So verses 1 and 2 of this chapter speak of how we are to treat one another as family in the church, particularly when needing to reprove someone. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. So why is Paul telling Timothy not to rebuke an older man in verse 1, when in other places in the Bible it says to rebuke? Well, the word for rebuke here is a different word than used in other places. The word rebuke here is a harsher word. Um, It means to strike out. It means to verbally assault someone or to strike a blow with your mouth or to talk down to someone, to punish someone with your words. Rather than rebuke an older man, 
Paul is telling Timothy that when he has to correct an older man, that he should come along him and, uh, alongside him and exhort him in a comforting and an encouraging way. To exhort is to encourage. It has the idea of being like a coach or a trainer, helping someone to reach their best. Timothy is to respect the older man as if he is his own father. God respects older men, therefore we should also. He called older men. Uh, Abraham was 75, Moses was 80, and Caleb was 85. Difficult conversations with older people are to be done with proper respect. Older people have wisdom that should be paid attention to. People get a little wiser when they get older. They have life experience to draw from, especially if they have grown old walking with the Lord. Younger men also need to be exhorted from time to time. Younger men are to be treated as brothers. They don't have to be given the same humble deference you would an older man, but they should be treated as brothers, as partners and friends serving with the Lord, in the Lord. Timothy was to treat younger men on the same level as himself, not as if they were inferior. Older women. There are times when a pastor may have to confront or exhort an older woman. Um, so Paul is telling Timothy to treat the older women as mothers with respect and honor, just like you would your own mom. I remember one time when I was a teen, I was having an argument with my mom. I'm sure I wasn't being careful to be respectful. After all, I was clearly right and she was wrong. My dad heard the argument and he told me that I was not to speak to my mom, his wife, that way. It didn't matter to him one bit that I was right. <laughs> it only mattered how I was talking to her. When we think of respecting older women in the church, um, we should think of that in the same way as respecting our own mothers. We remember that we don't only respect our mom when she's right. We respect her always and honor the fact that God used her to give us life. And younger women may also need to be exhorted. The younger women were to be treated with absolute purity. Paul's telling Timothy that interaction with younger women was always to be pure and without reproach. A godly man is not flirtatious. He's not provocative. He doesn't use double entendre, which is witty words that can be taken in a flirty way. A godly man guards against that and doesn't do it. He is to treat her as a sister and nothing else. A man should have no unclean thoughts towards his own sister. A man protects his own sister. And that goes for his sisters in the Lord as well. For single women, stay away from any man claiming to be a Christian, desiring or pressuring any woman to have sexual relations outside of marriage. He's a man thinking of committing spiritual incest and needs to be reproved by the pastors and elders. For everyone's protection, pastors should not be counseling women one-on-one -on -one outside of a crisis situation. They should not be counseling women in a prolonged situation. If a pastor has to counsel a woman, his wife or another elder should be present. Titus 2 tells us that the older women are to teach the younger women in the church. So the ideal is that the older women mature in the faith should be counseling younger women. So this counsel is from Paul to Timothy, a man to a man, a church leader to a church leader. But as women, we can benefit from this counsel as well. Confrontation isn't something we should like doing, but neither should we avoid it when it's necessary. We want to remember these steps when we find ourselves having to rebuke or counsel someone. First, always go in private. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus gives the steps for dealing with a sinning brother or sister. According to this passage, if the person's living in unrepentant sin, we're to dress it one-on-one -on -one first. And then if it's still unresolved, it should be taken to a small group. And finally, before the whole church, if the problem still remains. 
Secondly, direct them to God's word. Third, make sure you hear the whole story or both sides of the story. Proverbs 18.13 says, it's a fool who answers the matter before he hears the whole story. Fourth, offer hope. Give biblical examples. Fifth, never give up on people. God is the God of the impossible, including impossible people. Sixth, involve yourself. Pray for them. Check up on them. Seventh, speak the truth in love. Don't water down the truth. And eighth, be humble. Now Paul is going to narrow it down to talk specifically about widows in verses 3 through 16. Paul had most likely played a part in making many women widows prior to his conversion as he participated in the persecution of Christians. So these things about widows are very close to his heart. God cares for widows, and we see this throughout Scripture. Moses says in Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24, that God says, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Moses says in Deuteronomy 10:18, He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. David says in Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. A whole book of the Bible is about three widows, Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi. God cared for them and gave them a future and a hope. We see the compassion of God for widows most clearly through Jesus. Luke 7, 12 to 13 says, And when he, Jesus, came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He was deeply moved. And he said to her, Do not weep. Jesus raised the son from the dead and presented him to his mother. As we continue to read through the New Testament, we see that the church came, as the church came into being, uh, ministries of compassion were created. In Acts 6, the daily distribution of food was organized by the church for widows in the congregation. And here in 1 Timothy, about one-sixth of this letter is devoted to the um, care of widows. Widows have a special place in the heart of God. It's easy for us to think that our Christian religion is going to church, reading our Bible, praying, etc., and those are important things for us to be doing, but we are to remember what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What Paul is urging the church to do is to cultivate a culture of caring and serving, in this particular instance, towards widows. Paul goes on to talk about three types of widows. A destitute widow, a widow who's being cared for by her family, and a widow who is dead while she's alive. The first is the destitute widow. Verses 3, 5, and 9, and 10 talk about her. Honor widows who are really widows. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. The idea to honor is to value them and financially support them 
in a way that is dignified and honorable, not in a way that demeans or humiliates them. So what does Paul mean by a widow who was really a widow? The word widow simply means one who is without. She is without a husband and she is without family. Her husband may have died or divorced her or deserted her. She might be young, she might be old. The term really a widow here is referring to someone who is really destitute. In the days when the New Testament was written, there was no social security uh, from the government. There was no such thing as life insurance and women weren't a part of the workforce like they are today. Widows were without any means to support themselves and could really be in a desperate situation if they did not have family to step up and help. Notice that this widow, who is considered really a widow by the church, is one who puts her hope in God. She is really in need and left all alone, and she puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. Remember the widow who gave her two mites to God? She knew those two mites could really do nothing for her, so she gave them all to God, and she trusted that he would take care of her. And Jesus noticed in John 16:32, Jesus says, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. A widow is alone, but she is not really alone if she has God. And she puts her complete reliance on him for everything by praying night and day. The church had a special group for the widows who were really widows. There was an official enrollment and the widows needed to meet certain requirements. She had to be over 60 years old. That was considered old at that time because people didn't live as long as they do now. The widow had to have been a wife of one man. This didn't mean that she couldn't have been married more than once. It just means that she was loyal to one man at a time and that she recognized the sanctity of marriage. This also does not mean that a widow um, could not be on this list if she had been single all her life, because remember, the widow is simply someone who does not have a husband by definition. The widow had to have a good reputation for doing good works, and those good works are listed out. The first thing was that she would have brought up children. She may have raised her own children, but Christian women at that time were known for picking up abandoned children and raising them. It was a common practice in the Roman world to get rid of unwanted children by just leaving them someplace. It was called exposing an infant. They would just leave them out to die to be eaten by wild animals. And Christians were famous from the earliest days of the church for rescuing those exposed infants and bringing them up in the ways of the Lord and in the love of God. That spirit in Christianity is still alive and well today as Christians help women with unwanted pregnancies or unplanned pregnancies and they're involved in adoptions and foster care. She would have lodged strangers. This means she was hospitable. There were not very many places to stay, so people would open up their homes to strangers. She would have washed the saints' feet. Back in those days, they traveled dirt roads and sandals. Today's equivalent might be to offer someone a cold drink or a place to rest. She would have relieved the afflicted, meaning she ministered to the sick, to other widows, to those less fortunate. She delivered food and encouraged those who needed encouragement. She diligently followed every good work. In other words, she looked for opportunities to be a blessing and to serve others. So as the church was committed to supporting these destitute widows, the widows were expected to serve the church in some way. The widows who needed support were to be prayer warriors and spiritual support where it was needed and they could be of help. This would be a commitment that they would carry out the rest of their lives. 
It was a ministry that God had given the widows. The widows were not just receiving a handout because the resources of the church should go to those who are serving and living godly lives. A church may still help a widow who fails in the area of serving and living godly, but they are under no spiritual compulsion to do that. Next, there is the widow with family help. She truly is a widow, but not destitute. She is not without help. Verses 4, 8, and 16 speak of her. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who really are widows. Exodus 20.12 says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Ephesians 6.2 and 3 says, Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. That's a command with a promise. It isn't the church's responsibility to replace family responsibility. And it isn't the state's responsibility to replace family responsibility. God's first provision for widows comes through the family. The word provide means to plan before, to think ahead. In our own families, we need to put some thought into how we might care for our aging and widowed parents and grandparents so that we are prepared when the time comes. And when we care for them, we are repaying the good things that our parents and grandparents have paid into our own lives. And also by doing this, we are bringing pleasure to the heart of God, for this is good and acceptable before God. That same phrase was used back when we learned about praying for our leaders. It leads to a quiet and peaceable life. God considers it excellent, beautiful, and admirable to care for the widows in our family. It is acceptable in his sight, which means that it is received gladly by him and with satisfaction. Family gets to put their religion into practice. Charles Spurgeon once said, what you are at home is what you are. Real Christianity begins at home. So what is the motivation to care for those in your own family circle that need help? Because it isn't always easy. My father-in-law lived with us before he passed. And he was of the generation who lived through the uh, Depression and World War II. He lived by the saying, waste not, want not. He would get on my youngest daughter every night at dinner for playing around with her food and being fussy with it, as children will do. It got so bad for her that she would build a wall around her dinner plate with anything she could find so that he couldn't see her plate. And I remember my mom, newly widowed herself, who jumped in, right in to take care of my grandmother who had Alzheimer's. That was quite a challenge. They had been each other's best friends all their lives, but now my grandmother was combative and behaved like a toddler because of the disease. But our motivation to do the hard thing to care for our elderly parents and family is Jesus. In John 19, 26 and 27, we read about Jesus on the cross. It says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mary was probably a widow at this point. Jesus' brothers were not believers until after Jesus' resurrection, and they weren't present at his crucifixion. So Jesus, in his agony, entrusted his mother to John. He was not thinking of himself. He was thinking of his mother. Verse 8 says, We are worse than an unbeliever if we don't care for our parents and grandparents. 
We are denying the faith because the Christian faith is others-centered. Even unbelievers know what it is to care for their own. How much more should we who know Jesus be doing this? One commentator said, the Christian who falls below the best heathen standard of family affection is the more blameworthy, since he has what the heathen has not, the supreme example of love in Jesus Christ. Even if our parents are in a retirement home, that doesn't mean we are absolved from care and love and consideration and communication. One who won't take this responsibility has a terrible testimony. Jesus laid down his life for us. He worked as a carpenter until he was 30 years old, and then he was in public ministry for three years, and then he gave his life on the cross. If Jesus is in us, we should be able to lay down our lives for others. Lastly is the widow who is dead while she is alive. In verse 6, it says, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. A person can be physically alive but spiritually dead, not living for God but living for pleasure. This phrase speaks of lavish excess with a slight sense of sexual immorality, possibly involving prostitution. She has no interest in God. She's not provided for by the church or by the family because by her own choice, pleasure is her provision. There is a separation between the mind and God. Therefore, she is biblically dead. Separation between the consciousness and the body is physical death, but between the consciousness and God is spiritual death. And she will be twice dead, physically and spiritually, if she dies in her sins. It's easy to look down on this type of woman. I kind of imagine her sitting over there in Atlantic City, pulling that you know, lever, gambling all night long. But we need to compel her to go to the cross and give up her sinful lifestyle while there is still time. Paul has some special instructions regarding young widows. Verses 11 through 15 speak of her. It says, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. Paul didn't want the younger widows to be included in this special group um, that had um, the enrollment of, of the older widows ministering prayer because... First of all, the younger widows would probably not be able to fulfill the lifelong commitment to prayer that was to be made because they'd likely want to marry again. And in their grief, they might say, that's it, I'll never marry again, I'll just follow Jesus. But if they fell in love and married again, it would cause them to break their vow that they made to the church and the Lord, and then they would feel condemned. So this doesn't mean that it's wrong for them to remarry. Paul's telling Timothy not to let the young widows make that kind of a vow. Um, because their desire for a husband will most likely wake again. Paul shows great wisdom in telling Timothy this. Paul says that the young widows might grow wanton and learn to be idle. Wanton means to act, act in a luxurious way. The picture would be of a pampered horse who's unbridled. Nothing confines the horse so it runs wild. And idle, of course, is having nothing productive to do. If the church were to be financially taking care of young widows, some could likely fall into being wanton and idle. They still have a lot of life in them and they might become restless. They have natural passions and they wouldn't be satisfied and content with widowhood. And this lifestyle may lead the young widows 
to wandering from house to house, leading to gossip, being busybodies, meddling in people's business. You've heard it said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. If the young widow is truly destitute, though, the church should provide for her financially until she's able to marry again. So God is saying, younger widows do not need to remain in the widowhood, and he gives permission for them to remarry. In 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And in 1 Corinthians 7.39, it says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So this is what Paul desires the young widows to do. Marry, unless by called, called by God to singleness. Bear children if able. Perhaps consider adoption. Manage their home, not their husband. So why follow these commands? Titus 2, 4 through 5 says, Younger women are to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So we will have a good testimony before the world. In verse 15, it has that strange verse that says that some of them had turned aside to Satan. It could mean that a young widow did not really have a deep faith to begin with, and widowhood wasn't what she bargained for when she got saved. So she could even be compared to the older widow who's living for pleasure. To sum it all up, there are 13 million widows in the United States. That's about seven to 800,000 every year added to that list. One third of those who are widowed are widowed before age 60 and lose 75% of their income instantly. Although the family responsibility comes first, God also provides for his people in need through the kindness of the body in the local church. When the family isn't there or the family isn't interested, there is the family of God. We care for people the church with the greatest need, and there are a lot of people in distress. In his sovereignty, God allows it to be so, so that we will learn to minister to each other. People who have prayed and asked God for help see what they receive from others as being a gift that came from the hand of God himself. That's the joy of Christian giving. People discern in the kindness of believers that God himself, the Father, is through his own children caring for their needs. This is a beautiful thing. When we're able to help someone, we don't get the glory. God does. Responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit so that a person in need would experience the provision of God is a wonderful ministry that glorifies him. Every day we should ask ourselves and pray, whose life can I touch today? Who will experience the help of God through my kindness this week? For those caring for elderly parents and grandparents currently, your ministry is a reflection of the heart of God. Isaiah 46.4 says, this is God speaking, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. For an elderly person, you are reflecting the promise and the heart of God through visitation, care, help, and compassion. A woman asked a couple of questions of widows that she knew. The first question was, what are some of the hardest things about being a widow? The answer, nights are lonely. I don't have a man to bounce things off of. It's hard not having a guy in my life to fix things and maintain things. I don't have enough money to fix things. I wish someone would do my yard work. Things that are new to me are hard, like how to take care of my finances. 
The friends that were our friends over time were no longer my friends. A second question was, how can you be best ministered to as a widow? To be included in nighttime activities. To give a phone call now and then. I was speaking to Christy, who lost her husband a couple years ago, about a friend of mine who just lost her husband. And she said, I asked her, you know, what should I do? And she said, call her. She said, be annoying if you have to, but call her anyway. Um, to receive help when help is asked for. She got this answer twice, so it must be a common problem, unfortunately. Knowing that others are praying for me. Maintaining fellowship with other believers. One woman told her that she really never has any needs because the Lord takes care of all of them and she's ministered to by his presence, and that's a beautiful thing. But not everyone feels like that. I'm sure if we spoke to our own Mary Jo and Victoria, they could tell us more and we could learn a lot from them. Um, James 2, 15 and 16 says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? This lesson really brought home to me that I want to be more than talk. I want to take more action to help. May we all find ways to be women who show our faith by our works, and may God get the glory. Let's pray.